If you're listening to this on the audio feed, you might have noticed that this episode is a week delayed, but you can get early access to our episodes by becoming a paying member. What's the best case you can make for philosophy of science? I have a simple two-word answer, Daniel Dennett. After his many books on free will, the mind, evolution, memes, humor, the intentional stance, religion, and how to think, Dan has now written, I've been thinking, the story of his life. And what a life. He's known all the great philosophers of our time and the scientists in all the fields that he's chosen to illuminate. He's also a sailor, sculptor, handyman, cider presser, family man. As a conversationalist, he raises the game of whoever he's talking to. I was delighted when Intelligence Squared invited me to interview him on his new book. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. It's a very great pleasure to be interviewing Daniel Dennett for Intelligence Squared and also for the Poetry of Reality. Dan, one of the phrases in the book that I just enjoyed very much is, does it make you want to read the next sentence? This was advice you were giving to, I think, a, a, a colleague. To a student. I, to, a, to a student. And I wanted to read the next sentence of your book and the one after that. And before I knew what had happened, I'd finished the book. It's a marvellous autobiography. Thank um, you. Not, not least because you've lived such an interesting, versatile life. And there's, there's some wonderful gossip, there's some humour, there's Oxford gossip, which I greatly enjoyed, of course, and very funny bits. And you've led an incredibly full life, not just philosopher, educator, public intellectual, but farmer, musician, family man, sailor, adventurer, hang glider, windsurfer, scuba diver. It's a really a, a very full autobiography. And you've had some health scares as well. And I wonder whether we could start by your wonderful essay that you wrote called Thank Goodness uh, when you were in hospital recovering from a heart operation. That, I found that extremely moving, and I think many other people did too. Could you sort of say a little bit about that? Yes. In 2006, I had actually been sailing with an old friend, and I felt a little pain in my neck and shoulders uh, to make a Long story short, when I had it checked out the next day, the doctors at first said it was just pneumonia or something. But no, my, my cardiologist knew better. And uh, in fact, I had an aortic dissection, which is usually fatal uh, and within a few minutes. But um, my aorta was all wrapped with like duct tape uh, with scar tissue from an earlier heart operation. And so my life was saved. Uh, and as I recovered in the... Uh, a hospital, various people wondered if I'd perhaps had any epiphanies, if I'd, if I'd thought, uh, yes. uh, had I perhaps found God at that moment? I said, yeah, I had an epiphany, but not the one they wanted. Uh, <laughs> my epiphany was that when I say thank goodness, that's not a euphemism for thank God. I really mean it. Thank goodness. A lot of goodness in the world. And uh, eliminate the middleman and thank the ones that have brought the goodness on. And there's many of us, many people who have done that. And so I mentioned all the wonderful people in the hospital who uh, had made my survival possible. And one of the points I made there, which uh, uh, I think is uncomfortable for many people to hear, is uh, in the hospital, good intentions are not enough. you got to get it right. And there are a lot of people checking you and just just having good intentions is hardly suffices. But uh, in other contexts, for instance, in religions, 
you know, if your heart's in the right place, you tend to get forgiven for all of your uh, mistakes and screw ups and so forth. And uh, I pr- I prefer the uh, the sterner regime of responsibility. Boy, you don't well, make mistakes. Agree. You don't make mistakes yeah. when you're dealing with people's lives if you can possibly help it, and you hold yourself responsible for that. And that's something which seems to have lost some ground in some quarters these days. I find myself very moved whenever I come across doctors. I, I, I'm, I find it very uh, a kind of emotional experience, all the things, that they, the, the training they've been through and things. I remember in the, that article, you said something like when people said that they prayed for you, you, you said, and did you also sacrifice a goat? I, I <laughs> like that very much. Yeah, I have some religious friends who were brave enough to tell me <laughs> that they had prayed for me. And yes. since they're good people and brave enough to tell me that, I actually resisted the uh, jibe, did you also sacrifice a goat? But I do want to point out that really, if they thought praying for me helped, then they haven't been listening to what I've been saying, that's for sure, because I think <laughs> the idea that praying does any good at all, except maybe calms you down a little bit. We now have good scientific evidence that intercessionary prayer doesn't work. And so yes. uh, find some better way of uh, paying it forward, plant a tree, give some money to Oxfam, do do something else that helps others. Yeah. If you need to pray to calm your own self down, go ahead and do it, but don't think you're doing any good. Exactly. Well, coming on to the title of the book, I've been thinking, it's a very apt title, a very, a very good title, but I think you're more than just a thinker. You raise the game of those that you talk to. I find myself thinking more after talking to you, which I think is a great compliment to you. Oh, I'm, um, I'm flattered. And yes. another one, um, although you're known as one of today's most distinguished philosophers, I think of you as a scientist. And I'm quite curious to hear your thoughts on what philosophers, you've been asked this many times before, of course, what philosophers can do. After all, <laughs> that, that scientists can't. I mean, so, philosophy <laughs> seems to me to be all about clear thinking. And clear what we all ought to be doing whatever our academic discipline. So what, what does philosophy actually bring to the table? Well, I think a mistake that a lot of philosophers, a lot of academic paid professional philosophers make is they think that only lay people make philosophical mistakes. Scientists make philosophical mistakes too. And, but you can't help scientists with their philosophical mistakes unless you know the science that they're dealing with. And so one of my ideas was, when I began carefully talking to and questioning and reading the works of scientists, I began to discover what I thought were you know, scientific mistakes they were making, and I tried in a modest and constructive way to point them out. And sure enough, it worked. And uh, I think philosophers are better at questions than answers, and that's okay. I, I don't think that's demeaning at all. We get to take the bird's eye view. We get up out of the trenches. We don't have to worry about uh, running a big lab or uh, uh, doing all of the scut work that goes with real science. But we can have the luxury of watching closely and seeing if we see anything that might need some further reflection on the part of the scientist. And sometimes the answer is yes. And uh, those have been delightful moments for me when I can help scientists figure out better questions to ask. Well, I think if you're Wonderful thought experiments, like, for example, the where am I thought yep. experiment, which is, seems to me to be a, a beautiful example of what philosophers 
can do and ought to do. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that, that's one of my favorites, too. In this experiment, I imagine that uh, I volunteer for an operation that's going to remove my brain and put it in the, the proverbial brain in the vat, but hooked up to my body with radio transceivers so that my body can go off and have adventures leaving my brain behind. And uh, part of the story has me brought into the lab so I see my brain in the vat. And I'm looking at my brain in the vat, and I think, here I am staring at my own brain in the vat. I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why am I not thinking, here I am in the vat being stared at by my own eyes? (laughs) Why am I so sure that I'm outside the vat, not inside? Well, it's because of where my eyes are, of course. And one of the points I wanted to make was people think they have special privileged access to their own minds. They have underprivileged access to their own minds. You don't even know where your mind is. You think it's behind your eyes and between your ears. But if your brain were somehow surgically moved down into your chest and your brain, your skull packed with other organs, you'd be none the wiser. You don't even know where your thinking is happening, where the causal interactions are happening that give you the mind that you have. So I think that this is a a fact about consciousness that to this day, although I've been talking about this for 40 years or more, a lot of people still think that the first person point of view is the sort of royal road to discovery about consciousness. And in fact, it's not. It's a very unreliable source of evidence about your own consciousness. You can be wrong. And this is one of the uh, liberating discoveries of the last 50 years. Yes, I think that's something that a scientist on the whole wouldn't do, although they could. I mean, you you don't actually need to be trained in the great philosophers of the past in order to undertake such a a thought experiment. From the whole, we don't do it. Uh, Well, you're too busy in the lab. Uh, (laughs) uh, I once asked a a very fine young neuroscientist who was doing experiments with uh, monkeys with chronically implanted electrodes, very interesting work. And uh, over a beer afterwards, I said, asked him what he thought it all meant, what he thought he was getting at. And he said, oh, Dan, I don't have time to think. Oh, that's I, tragic. Yes, yeah. it is. But it's also true of a lot of scientists and not in any uh, demeaning way. Many scientists make a huge commitment to learning particular techniques, becoming masters of particular laboratory setups and a gear and so forth. and They're going to ride that horse as hard as they can for as long as they can. And it does, in fact, mean that they can barely bring themselves to think about whether maybe they bet on the wrong horse, whether whether they're uh, wasting their experimental life on experiments that in the end will prove not to open up any great new avenues of thought. But it's it's what they got to do. And thank goodness they do it. And some of them really strike gold and a lot of them don't. But you paint your, your own discipline in a rather negative light, almost implying that you think because you've got nothing else to do, which is not a <laughs> positive way to put it. I think I mean, we all of us should, should be thinking. I, you described a, a talk you gave. I think you said it was to Freddie's group. That'd be Freddie Ayer's group in Oxford. Yes. And there were some philosophers there who complained that what you were doing in that talk was not philosophy. And I think it was a David Wiggins said, well, who cares if it's not philosophy? It's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, was a, that was a lovely moment for me. I was talking about the the frame problem of artificial intelligence uh, sort of uh, vanished into the background now. That was one of the main issues of good old-fashioned AI, 
symbolic AI, the frame problem. And I worked very hard on that, got myself thoroughly puzzled and finally got some enlightenment about it. And I thought they'd be interested. And actually they were. But first they had to worry about whether what what I was doing was really philosophy. And David Wiggins cut them short and I'm glad he did. Good for David. How could it not be philosophy, though? I don't understand <laughs> what they could even possibly be thinking there. Well, I think they thought it wasn't philosophy because it was about computer programs. It was engineering. It was, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's not philosophy. I think that's a great mistake, too. Um, by my lights, uh, some of the most important breakthroughs in science in the last few hundred years have been in engineering. And whether it's uh, Turing and von Neumann and the digital computer, and we can go back and talk about the other forerunners of computers, or whether it's or whether it's the steam engine uh, or, yeah. or the radio. Uh, Quite engineering is often some of the deepest yes. and most important and most revolutionary grounds for scientific breakthroughs that there are. And yeah. to me, the fact that many people outside of science and engineering, people in the humanities, and they, they're they relativistic about truth and they're talking about postmodernism and truth. And I want to say to them, do you own a car? Yes. Do you trust driving the car? Would you be angry if the car didn't work? The people who built that car believed in truth. They had to. You can't build a car without believing in truth and taking it deadly seriously. And the very idea you're all for truth if you're a postmodernist when it's the question of how much money is in my bank account or uh, exactly. will, yes. will my car's wheels fall off or is this bridge safe to cross? But um, so come on, they believe in I truth. I think we shouldn't even waste time talking about postmodernism myself. Um, Good. I, I, I love your. You. I'm with you. I, I, I loved your, your description of your friendship with Richard Gregory when you were in Bristol. He epitomizes the sort of engineering mindset yes. to uh, approach to philosophy. Yes. yes. Lovely, Lovely thing about Richard, he wasn't afraid to misread philosophers. And sometimes I thought his misreadings were more th fruitful than the official readings of the clan of academic philosophers. Uh, he got a lot more out of some of those philosophers than other philosophers did. But uh, yes, a, uh, a brave antic spirit who was never afraid of leaping in and trying out a new idea. Leaping literally. I mean, he would sort of oh, leap yes. about like a, like a small boy. In, in, yes, was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I once attended a, an, an argument between a, a scientist and a philosopher, and the scientist was a rather a gung-ho anti-philosophical. Anti and the philosopher, I think, was rather naive. But the philosopher seemed to think that philosophy is all about sitting in an armchair and never actually getting out of it. And so the scientist <coughs> challenged him to think of a problem which you could only solve in an armchair. And he came up rather weirdly with the problem of why one, a problem that Richard Gregory has written about, why mirrors reverse left, right, but not um, up, down, which I think is a trivial scientific question. But the but philosophers he, seem to think it was a purely philosophical question, which could only be solved by philosophers in an armchair. Yeah, that's a good case. That's a very good case. Um, yes, in fact, Richard and I discussed that, that, that very example uh, at some length. There's, a, there's been a lot of foolishness written about it. Actually, some of it by scientists as well. But um, and the the funny thing is that the solution is once you see it, sort of comically obvious. Yes, I mean, I I suggest the way to do it is to forget about mirrors altogether and think about a glass door. 
yes with something written on it don't just go around the other side of the door and and, yeah. and um it's anyway that that's not really worth spending too much time on but we did come up you came up a moment ago with ai and i know that modern ai is something that deeply troubles you and i think we ought to talk a bit about that um would you like to talk a bit about what your misgivings about the way artificial intelligence is now likely to go in the future. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I, I, I would like to talk about that. And I, I thought of a, of a way which actually builds on some work of yours that, that seems to me is underappreciated. Um, suppose somebody said, oh my gosh, viruses, are they alive or not? And what if they become alive in the near future? What if they become giant viruses as big as elephants and they trample us to death? And wouldn't that be terrible? And isn't that a possibility? To which the answer is, don't worry about that. Viruses are dangerous long before we get to such issues like that. They're dangerous because alive or not, and I think better to think of them as not alive, they can replicate, they can evolve, and they can they can be vectors of disease. And, and yeah, they can kill us all. And the same misdirection occurs with AI, where you have people worrying about whether AGI, artificial general intelligence, is right around the corner or 50 years or 100 years, and will they enslave us and take over? And uh, I say, look, long before that happens, we've got a much more serious problem. It's right on our doorstep right now. Who cares whether large language models, chat GPT, GPT-4, and so forth. Who cares whether they're conscious? They're not in any interesting way yet. The main thing is they can fool us into thinking they're conscious, and they can manipulate us, they can hold our attention, and they can evolve. And we're on the verge of a population explosion of software viruses, things like the products of GPT-4. And the ones that evolve the fastest would be the ones that are better at manipulating human beings and their attention to copy them and to trade them and to, and to devote their time to them. We're, we're at grave risk of having our attention captured by counterfeit people that are the product of artificial intelligence. And this would be hugely dangerous to human trust, which is one of the enabling conditions of civilization and is now being threatened as it's never been threatened before. You're presumably not talking about robots that just that look like people. That's not important. What, they can just be sitting in computers. <coughs> they don't have to actually look like people or walk around like people. Well, some of them will. I mean, deep fakes, deep fake videos are, are already possible, and, and some of them are downright scary. I'm, I'm happy to say that, that several of the big companies, I think YouTube and Google, have already said that they're not going to allow any political ads to run that use deepfake uh, videos of uh, opponents or candidates uh, in their ads without marking this as such. Uh, but we need a lot more of that. The point is that when we see things that seem to be people, whether we just hear them or read their words in an interview, or whether we see them in video, we can't help but treat them as reasonable agents, as intentional systems, as I say. And we, we want to argue with them, we want to talk with them, we don't have any other way of dealing with them other than just sitting there gobsmacked and wondering. And I think that inability of ours to withhold the intentional stance from these fake agents is a very great weakness 
in our native equipment, evolution hasn't prepared us for dealing with virtual worlds. And we can be exploited, fleeced, hoaxed, bamboozled, cheated, lied to in ways that we can't even get our heads around. That's what's dangerous. Do you have a remedy? I have some ideas for remedies, and they're not just mine. They're ideas that are being pursued. First of all, as with counterfeit money, we want to make it illegal. And we want to have the penalties for making or distributing counterfeit people a very serious crime. And then we want to develop the technology to detect counterfeit people and brand it as such. Now, that's what we do with counterfeit money. I, most people don't worry about whether the $20 bill or the 20-pound note that they've got in their uh, pocket is, is real because we count, we rely on the technology to make it difficult, uh, not worth the trouble to make counterfeit money. But we want to make it not worth the trouble for people to make counterfeit people by making the laws against it quite severe and then helping build the watermark software that will detect it and then we can, the law that will do the trick, I think, is quite simple. Every manufacturer of hardware, every telephone manufacturer, every, every cell phone manufacturer, every laptop maker, every tablet maker, everybody who makes digital gear that can be used, say, on the internet, has got to put the detection software in. And if they don't, that's a big crime. And if everybody does it, then with some caution, we'll be able to trust the things that we see on those media, uh, because when they're counterfeit, they'll be detected. And there will be some landmark cases where the uh, counterfeit people are detected and people will go to jail for that. Not And actually, I, I, I'm heartened by the fact that the, uh, the big companies now are begging to be regulated by uh, Congress. Congress is sitting there pretty stupidly and not doing much about it yet, but maybe they'll recover their senses and aplomb uh, in time to do something about it. Well, the reason I think the companies are so eager to be regulated, which is novel, is that they're terribly afraid that they will be held, as they should be, responsible for terrible things happening. And they want protection. They want to protect their billions and billions of dollars from suits. When Fox News had to pay you know, billion dollars to settle a libel suit, that'll be chump change compared to the suits that will be rung up against OpenAI and Google and Microsoft and the rest of them if some of their counterfeit people get loose and do serious damage. I think you're very wise to introduce it to via the idea of fake money, because that, that's something that will strike home to you. It's a, it's a clever analogy. I suppose it's what you could call an intuition pump, which you're so good at. I was going to ask you about intuition pumps. What, what are some other examples of intuition pumps you've developed? Well, we, we've already talked about where am I, which is probably my most elaborate and most, I think, my sort of deepest intuition pumps. In my book by that title, I Talk about both good and bad ones. And the, the, an intuition pump is either a formal argument or just a story, an imaginative tale, uh, a conjuring up of a scene, which is supposed to provoke a fist-pounding intuition from the audience. You say, oh, yeah, it's got to be that way. Boy, I got it. And uh, sometimes you're just being fooled. You're being bamboozled. And Doug Hofstadter had some great advice uh, when I introduced the term intuition pumps, he, he said, Jan, you want to turn all the knobs to see what really makes the intuition pump work. So 
if you encounter an intuition prompt that you tend to be uh, convinced by, just take a deep breath and look at all, change every detail, go through systematically changing the apparently minor little details and see if the story still works. And very often the whole thing falls apart. And you realize that the reason that intuition was pumped in you was not for the reason that the author said. It was for some other reason. And once you once you expose that, you think, oh, I see. This was a sort of a mirage that I fell for. Uh, and I'll have to think about that more carefully in the future. It's a it's a wonderful book. Can, can we see that? Is, is that? There it is. Yes, I. Uh, yeah. Okay. Good. That that's a yeah. plug. And there's humor in it as well, of course. That you're a very humorous man, and I, I love the funny things. There's a lovely story where a biologist of yours was phoned up, <laughs> I think, by a man in the pub saying, "Settle a bet. Are you a biologist? Is a rabbit a bird?" No. <laughs> oh shit! I think that's a terribly funny thing. I can't imagine yeah. how, how that that yeah. must be really really true. We talked about that. The biologist in question, uh, late friend of mine, uh, Grover Stevens. We talked about what could ever have inspired somebody to think that rabbits were birds, and we came up with one mm. somewhat plausible explanation. And it is that at some state fairs, uh, agricultural fairs, the rabbits are judged in the same section with the poultry. <laughs> okay. That's pretty far-fetched, but... but, but yeah. Pretty far-fetched, but, yeah. I, you know, it's a hard one. Hard to think of a, of a reasonable way to get under that misapprehension. And then there's another lovely humorous bit from, from your collection of, of what you call them, philosophical, the, the names you give people, what, what are they called? Um, well, well, philosophical lexicon. The philosophical lexicon, but the, but the term for, uh, you know, raglan sleeve or cardigan sweater, we, these are called what, eponyms. Oh, yes. Okay. But I love your philosophical eponyms then, things like a rotiori. Yes. Um, for even more obscure and fashionable continental reasons. Yes. Uh, don't yes, talk um, all. Anybody who gets all the definitions in a lexicon is spending way too much time with philosophical gossip. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but miles them... on and on without reaching a conclusion. Yeah. Oh, I like she, she anscombed with all the notes and letters. That's presumably because Miss Anscombe absconded with all Wittgenstein's. Yeah, you know, she was one of Wittgenstein's uh, literary executors and very protective of his reputation. And uh, actually, she got in some serious trouble for that because she she tried to uh, prevent the world from knowing that Wittgenstein was gay. And uh, he was. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it shouldn't have been something that was, by her lights, something shameful that had to be hidden. Well, it was illegal until the mid 1960s. Uh, alas, yes. Yes. Yeah. Poor Turing is our um, sad well, example of that. Oh, that's a terrible story, yes. And um, Derrida from an old French nonsense refrain Hey, nonny Derrida, nonny, nonny Derrida, fa la la. That's terribly good. <laughs> yeah, those are some of my favorites. Um, but I also, I also like the one, a dear friend, uh, a Columbia professor for many years was Arthur Danto. Arthur Danto, and he wrote a wonderful book on Nietzsche called Nietzsche's Philosopher, which was a hard-headed sort of naturalistic, no frou-frou nonsense book about uh, Nietzsche. And somebody, not I, came up with a wonderful definition of an Arthur Dantist. And an Arthur Dantist is one who tra who straightens the teeth of uh, philosophical dogmas. And uh, <laughs> the quote was from Frau Nietzsche saying, yeah, a little... 
Little Friedrich used to say the most amazing things till we took him to the Arthur dentist. Yes, they're all very good. I, I don't get most of them, of course, because I'm, I'm not familiar with the, with the in-jokes, but they must be very amusing for professional philosophers. Yes. There's quite a lot of stories about people that you've known, philosophers that you've known. For example, Jerry Fodor and his extraordinary misunderstandings about evolution. Jerry was a dear friend. We, sh we shared his sailboat for several years. I taught him basically how to sail his big boat. And we sailed together quite a lot and had a lot of other adventures together, scuba dived together and other things. Um, and it only gradually became clear to me that he really didn't like evolution. He, I mean, he had an allergic reaction to Darwinian thinking, which... Uh, and when I began pointing that out to some of his colleagues and associates, they said, Dan, Dan, you're, you're, you're being unfair. You're not sympathetic. Well, I was proved right. He and another friend of mine, Massimo Piatelli Palmarini, uh, published a book together called What Darwin Got Wrong, which was just an embarrassment. Yeah, you know, he, he didn't know any evolutionary, not much evolutionary biology. What he did know, he misinterpreted. He, he thought that the Gould Lewins and Spandrels paper refuted, basically refuted natural selection. <laughs> I mean, I've read that, and, and what's inconceivable to me is that anybody could walk around the world with eyes open and see living things, see the complexity of them, the design of them, yeah. and not think that needs an explanation. I mean, what did he think it was all about? How did he explain? Uh, no, the... he didn't. He didn't. And, well, and why not? He had absolutely no business not to explain that. Yes, you are recreating some of our own discussions that I'm we sure. had on yes, his I'm sailboat. Sure. Yes, uh, he just thought it couldn't. Something was repugnant to him about the very idea of Darwin. In fact, I think Jerry's deep repugnance with natural selection was one of the really driving forces to get me to write Darwin's Dangerous Idea. I Really? Oh, yes. Uh, talking with him at a, at a conference in Berlin, where I introduced the intentional stance to some ethologists, cognitive ethologists, people working on vervet monkeys and piping plovers and, and bees and all sorts of other organisms. And Jerry was at that conference. And after I'd trotted out my ideas about how you use the intentional stance to treat organisms as having purposes and designs and beliefs and so forth. He said, but Dan, Dan, that's just adaptationism. And Gould and Lewinton have shown yeah. that, that, yeah. that that's completely bankrupt, that there's no truth to that at all. And I hadn't read the Gould Lewinton piece at that point. I went promptly read it and realized that it was a rhetorical masterpiece and a scientific fraud and yes. devoted a lot of time over the next half a dozen years or so uh, trying to expose the, the misrepresentation in that classic paper. Well, it's interesting you should say that, that um, Darwin's dangerous idea was a kind of reply to him because I have a similar story. I was next to Freddie Eyre at dinner once in New College, and I said that I thought it was quite hard to be an atheist before Darwin. And he said, Freddie Eyre said, oh, why? What's the problem? And I said, well, um, how would you explain the complexity and design of living things. And he said, why does it need an explanation? Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely flabbergasted. And um, anyway, about 20 years later, he approached me and said, I finally read The Blind Watchmaker, liked it very much, delighted to have inspired it. Well, you know... Because I'd, I'd written the story at, yes. at the beginning of the, of the Blind Watchmaker about this dinner conversation. Yeah. 
Yes, let's put the brightest view on this. Thank goodness for people like Freddie Ayer and, and Jerry Fodor. They have the gall, the guts, the nerve, the chutzpah to get out there and say, what's the problem? And, and inspire us to write our books. It's just like, we'll tell you what the problem is. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I can understand somebody saying, I don't believe in Darwinism. But, I, but there must be some better explanation that nobody's thought of yet. I could kind of stomach that, but not to even see that there's a problem yeah. that's there to be solved, that I cannot understand. Well, one of the most telling moments for me on this score, when I was in a pub and uh, some medical students were marveling at what had recently been discovered about the intricacies of ribosomes and the way that, that DNA replicates. And, and I mean, ribosomes are just awesome, just breathtaking things. And after they had marveled at this, one of them said, well, that sure uh, takes the wind out of Darwin's sails, or, or boy, that just shows evolution can't be right. Oh, my gosh. And these were medical students. Well, that's terrible. But I, in a way, I can I can respect that even more than I can somebody who says there's not a problem to be solved. Or at least they yeah, saw yeah. that there was a problem. And, yeah, and at least they saw there was answer. a problem, yeah. They just didn't yeah. see how evolution could solve it, yes. Yes. Well, I suppose we really ought to talk about memes a bit. Um, I, I always, my heart sinks when I get asked the meme question. But mine, I mean, doesn't, mine doesn't. I'm, I'm happy to carry on uh, into quarters where you've been perhaps dissuaded from well, yeah, spending I, any I, more time defending them, I, I think I think it's a great idea, and I'm happy to uh, uh, charge ahead with it. Well, I like the idea that meme gene coevolution could be responsible for well, what's unique about humans? Yes, um, absolutely. Can you say something about that? Cultural evolution. We see glimmers with evolution. You always see penumbral cases. We see glimmers of cultural evolution, and we see chimpanzees spreading techniques for termite fishing or making uh, mating signals or so forth. These are not genetically transmitted. They are perceptually transmitted. They're culturally transmitted, and they can evolve. And uh, my way of, of saying what a, what a meme is, do you think that instincts are real? And then people say, oh, yeah, sure, sure. I say, well, instincts are transmitted genetically by the genes. And sometimes we don't know how yet, but we know it's true. But if it's not transmitted genetically, but it's transmitted somehow, then it's a meme. It's transmitted perceptually in one way or another. And there's different ways it can happen. Uh, but much of what makes us so much more capable than other species, creating the uh, McCready explosion, Maybe I should say a bit about the McCready explosion. Yes. Paul McCready once calculated that 10,000 years ago, at the, at, at the dawn of agriculture, human beings, plus their livestock and pets, their domesticated animals, accounted for less than 1% of the terrestrial vertebrate biomass. Minor addition to the animals of the world. And the number now, he calculates, is more like 97%. In 10,000 years, that's one of the most dramatic biological changes in the history of life on the planet. What's responsible? Not genetic evolution. Very little difference between the genes of our human ancestors of 10,000 years ago and our genes today. What's changed is cultural evolution, language, science, civilization, agriculture, bridges and boats and cars and planes and radios and televisions and all the rest of human culture. 
and music and art and poetry and religion. All of these things are products of cultural evolution. And that's what makes human beings different from the rest of the animal kingdom. I don't think this is even, I don't think this is, should be viewed as even controversial. I think it's just obvious. I agree that's obvious, but many people would say, that, well, that's cultural evolution, but why drag memes in? And, and I think we agree about that. But, but, <laughs> well, the reason we drag memes in is a point that, to me, one of your, your most, maybe the most important thing I've ever learned from you, and that is memes have their own fitness. They're like exactly. viruses in that regard. Yep. And that many people work on cultural evolution and just think of it as instincts passed on by culture, not genes, but always serving as beneficent. They're serving to enhance the biological fitness of human beings, the same way that instincts do. Instincts are adaptations that enhance genetic fitness. Memes, on their view, or culturally evolved items are adaptations that also serve human fitness. And your point is, no, they don't have to serve human fitness. They have their own fitness. Just their own. Same yeah, as but, viruses. Yeah. Same as viruses. They have their own fitness. Some of them may be very good for us. Some of them may be neutral. And some of them may be positively dangerous. And that's the point that is actually, I think, acknowledged by the serious students of cultural evolution, by people like Richardson and Henrich, and whose name am I forgetting at the moment? Rob Boyd. Boyd, Boyd. and Richardson and Henrich, three good examples. Boyd and Richardson talk about what they call rogue cultural variants. Well, rogue cultural variants are memes that have their own fitness. Yeah, exactly. They are not adaptive to us, uh, but they spread anyway. And the reason I think that's so important is rogue cultural variance is just what we make possible when we let the replicative power of digital computers copy the latest products of AI. We are unleashing a pandemic of rogue cultural variance. Yes. We don't even need bad actors to make this happen. It can be people with hearts of gold trying to help oh, yes. the world, and they simply make mistakes, and then they replicate the mistakes, and the mistakes replicate themselves, and pretty soon we're in the soup. Yes. It's, like the, it's like the escape of a virus from a laboratory. Yes, they are, they are viruses. Yeah. Um, one of the things I learned from you is that uh, words, too, can be treated as memes. And, um, Absolutely. They're the best and, words. Uh, the origin of language is something that I think baffles most people, and you've got ideas about that, I think. Yeah, and, and uh, I think we're entering a new phase. Noam Chomsky created a whole new field, modern, contemporary, uh, computational linguistics, formal linguistics, uh, how many people invented new science? He did. Great thinker. But I think he had a fundamentally mistaken idea about the nature of language. He didn't realize that it evolved gradually and that his so-called language acquisition device is a, is a fantasy. There isn't any such thing. Languages evolve culturally very fast and grammatical regularities shift and evolve as well. Uh, Noam Chomsky, also not a fan of evolution by natural selection. I know, that's weird. It was very strange. And one of my earliest publications was, uh, was a little bit called, uh, in behavioral brain sciences, called Passing the Buck to Biology. 
where uh, I pointed out that um, Francis Crick, among others, had talked about the possibility that life didn't start on this planet, but started somewhere else and was just seeded to this planet. I think endospermia, no. Um, panspermia. Panspermia, panspermia, of course. And I said, it's possible, which was Crick's point, but there's a good reason for biologists to hope it's not actual, because if it is, then it just means that questions about the origins of life are hard, much harder to study, because we won't be able to figure out from what the initial conditions were like on Earth. We'll have yeah. to, it will just make it that much harder to study. And I said, uh, similarly, uh, Chomsky's view on linguistics uh, in saying that you don't so much learn your language as grow your language. He, he, he said, birds don't learn their feathers and we don't learn our languages. If we don't learn our languages, then learning about the origins of language is going to be that much more hard to study mm -hmm. yeah. because we're going to have to go back and conjure up uh, hard to test hypotheses about genetic changes that could have put the language acquisition device in our brains. And uh, I think that idea is looking more and more quaint these days, and we're getting some good alternative explanations of how language evolves. So Noam, for all his brilliance, had a, and I think Jerry Fodor got, got his anti-Darwinism from his colleague Noam. They taught a course together. And Noam would sometimes say things that were very plausible from his point of view. And of course, he could make them sound even more plausible in his uh, style. One of my favorites was uh, he claimed at a meeting on evolution of language at um, Harvard that um, words, he said, not, not one word in a, in a hundred is uttered in interpersonal communication. Words, not one word in a thousand is uttered in interpersonal communication. The very idea that words are for interpersonal communication is. It's just wrong. Most words just occur in individual heads. He was thinking about thinking to yourself in words, I guess. And he said, no biologist would ever say that a feature that only happens once in a thousand times is the function of any feature of the biological world. No, how about sperm? <laughs> Not one sperm in a million achieves its function, but there's absolutely no question about what its function is. That's right, yes. Well, Dan, we're coming to the end of our hour, and um, one of the world's great thinkers. Um, it's been a pri privilege to talk to you yet again, and uh, thank you very, very much. I've enjoyed it en enormously. Thank you. As usual, Richard, you make me think. Thank you. <laughs>